Welcome to the New Thinking for a New World podcast, where we explore the most pressing issues that are challenging and changing our societies. We are looking for new thinking and new solutions, wherever we can find them. Listen as host Alan Stoger, the Tolberg Foundation's chairman, challenges his guests for analysis, ideas and actions. Together we can help make our world at least a little bit better. A shape-shifting event like the global pandemic affects almost everyone on the planet. At first, we see the visible consequences. The deaths, overwhelmed healthcare systems, closed schools, offices, factories, lockdowns, and social distancing. As time passes, those disruptions are dealt with one way or the other, and the real lasting disastrous consequences become more evident. High on that list is the impact on children who have seen their schooling, social and mental health development, nutrition, and health badly interrupted. On the one hand, kids seem to be less vulnerable to the worst health impacts of COVID. On the other hand, they are much, much more vulnerable to the fallout of how societies have had to deal with COVID. And within that crisis space, girls are even more at risk than boys of becoming long-term casualties of the pandemic. Malia Khan is one of the leaders of the Malala Fund, started by Zayedan Yousafzai, to advocate for and invest in girls' education around the world. She's an expert on designing and implementing education programs. In a real sense, she is working at ground zero of the impact of all of this on vulnerable girls and vulnerable women. Welcome, Malia. Thank you, Alan. It's a pleasure to be here. The data tell a grim story. As many as 1 billion kids still not fully back in school, dramatically worse in low and middle income countries. Months, maybe years of education lost, widespread increased malnutrition, deep mental health scarring. What was a crisis before the pandemic hit is something much, much worse. And it has a disproportionate impact on girls. Is that too exaggerated a summary Uh, You'd be really surprised to know, given what I'm going to say, that I'm actually a natural optimist. But unfortunately, I think you're very, very um, on the spot there with your analysis. I think it is a crisis of a dimension that is going to be even bigger than the health crisis that the pandemic has been. Um, And it's something that's going to have an impact for generations to come, because as we know, Once a girl has lost her years of education and once she's dropped out of school, there's all sorts of social ills that happen, including sexual exploitation, early marriage, early childbirth and all and and, and other things like that that have generational impacts um, for many, many years to come. Um, So I wish I could say you're exaggerating, but unfortunately, I think you're pretty accurate. Can you put some numbers on it? How big is this? Well, We don't know yet because no country has really been fully able to reopen its schools and the ones who have have, aren't really reporting who's coming back to school and who's not coming back to school. However, Malala Fund, uh, almost a year ago at the start of the pandemic, did some research that was based on our previous experience in West Africa with the Ebola crisis and looked at the countries there with the long school closures, um, some of which were seven to eight months, and then assess based on what happened in places like Sierra Leone and and so forth that that had extended Ebola crisis, um, looked at the risk that various students had in terms of 
um, retention in school, coming back to school, the years of schooling they lost. And based on that, we're predicting that almost 20 million more secondary school girls will drop out of school by the end of the crisis. But I think if we add those numbers to the already out of school girls and the years of schooling that are lost, I think we're, we're looking at a quite a profound crisis. 20 million more. What is the status quo ante? How big was the, the problem before this hit? Uh, we had about 125 million girls out of school who were not completing primary education, who only had a few years of education or who never entered school in the first place. And most of those numbers are centered on a few countries, which we are seeing uh, are going to have a huge impact with the, with the pandemic. So we're looking at South Asia, India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and we're looking at some countries in West Africa, mostly Nigeria. Given those numbers and the extrapolation of what we're seeing, we are going to see, you know, almost 15 to 20 percent rise in the number of girls who are going to be dropping out of school. But more than that, the numbers who are going to lose vital years of education. In many of these countries, girls have an average of four to six years total of education. Um, we're counting almost a year of schooling that's been lost already. So if you think about it that way, that's about 20% of a girl's total years of schooling that are that's already been lost. Um, and let's not forget the years of, you know, the, the educational attainment impact of it. Um, we know from our own experiences that, you know, kids going back to school after summer vacation have lost so much, they, they forget, you know, it's, it's even a few months later, they've forgotten so much of what they've learned. And, you know, teachers are constantly complaining about having to do catch up on that. Um, and so when you think about, uh, you know, a year out of school, a year out of the habit of learning and a year of forgetting what they had learned before, um, it does mean that learning outcomes are going to be profoundly impacted. I read a Dutch study recently that suggested in Holland, which lost four or five months of school last year, kids, even with extensive remote learning opportunities, essentially learned nothing, more or less that they were testing when they came back to school, where they had been testing or worse when they left school. And I saw a British study recently that had similar results and, and had the anecdote, could be exaggerated, that young children are forgetting how to hold pencils. That when you take that year when they're four or five or six, a year is an enormous impact in, in a kid's life. The obvious question is, it's one thing to get kids back in school girls as well as boys. It's another thing then to remediate that lost year. How do you start over? Do you assume it's lost and you just go back to where the kid was or would have been? You know, that's going to be a real problem going forward, I think. Um, one of the things to also remember is that this, these studies were based on, you know, countries where there is a lot of digital access. There was a lot of remote learning. Um, it wasn't effective, as these studies are showing, but at least the kids had that. They also had learning environments at home where, you know, with parents uh, who, for the most part, were educated themselves, were able to, you know, provide some form of support in terms of the homeschooling. Think about the countries where these might be the first generation who are learning or, or who have parents who might have completed a few years of education themselves but had long forgotten whatever it, it is that they'd learned. So they can't provide the same sorts of support to the children uh, and particularly the girls when they're doing homeschooling. 
And then also think that most of these countries, particularly the poor and vulnerable populations within this, they have no access to any remote learning or to any digital technology. Um, Malala Fund did a survey in four countries. Uh, we surveyed over 6,000 children and their parents uh, in these four countries. And we found that you know almost 95% of the households said that they didn't receive any form of alternative learning materials or any form of digital support uh, or, or remote learning of any sort. Um, they didn't receive any sort of financial support in these times. So not only were these kids not learning, uh, but these families were facing cash crunches and were having to make you know, choices around that. Uh, even the ones who did have some access to remote learning, the girls were three times less likely to have access to the forms of digital technology, um, tablets, phone, smartphones, that would allow them to have access uh, to those remote learning opportunities. So we're starting at a lower base uh, because these kids have lower learning outcomes to start with. We're giving them a year worth of break from school. So whatever they learned before, they might, might have forgotten. And then we're putting them back into poorly resourced schools where remediation is going to be really difficult. When you're talking about schools, which are overcrowded, teachers who are poorly trained, it's going to be really difficult for them to be catching up uh, with school. Now, having said that, it's been sounding all doom and gloom so far, I think there are some, there are some hopes um, and some bright spots there too. Uh, one of the things that we heard over and over again in this survey we did of 6,000 um, students is that the girls wanted to learn. Which countries? We, this was in India. Pakistan, Nigeria, and Ethiopia. These were our focus countries. We tried to make them as representative. Of course, there's you know many more we could have done it in. But one of the things that came across clear uh, and, and loud and clear uh, in our survey was that girls wanted to go back to school, the vast majority of them. They wanted to go back to learning. They had asper they continued to have aspirations to learn. They continued to say they missed the learning environment, they missed being in schools and they missed the, their friends. Unfortunately, they also said that they didn't many of them said that they didn't think they be, would be able to go back to school. And so their aspirations and their expectations, uh, there was a gap between them, which we often see uh, with girls. Um, so yes, these are a lot of the problems we're facing right now. Let's segue to solutions. Um... We are where we are, as you've described it. Yeah. You're the only person recently that made me sound a little bit optimistic in my pessimism. Um, so thank you for that. Um, <laughs> but importantly, the Malala Fund and your own work is focused not just on understanding how deep is the hole, uh, but what can be done to close that gap between expectations and aspirations to give people, to give girls, uh, in very stressful environments, not just those countries, but the other half dozen that you work in, to give children, to give girls that opportunity that is getting further and further away from them. So what, not only what are you doing, but far more importantly, what needs to be done? Where does the triage come from? Um, Malala Fund has a very, very simple philosophy with, with, with regards to all education, um, but also with regards to girls' education. And that is that it is the right of every citizen to have 12 years of safe, quality, and free education available to them. And that means that 
as a citizen of a country, all children, but particularly girls, should be provided that education by their governments. And so what we try to do is not create alternative systems. We try, we, we, we stay away from, you know, putting up schools that would fill the gaps that the governments leave behind, but rather we work with local activists and advocates and experts, researchers uh, who are embedded in these countries to create the atmosphere of how can the government uh, fulfill its requirements and its duties to these citizens. And so we do fund and support all sorts of activities in these countries, including advocacy that these local activists are doing, research that they're doing to show the ways, you know, sort of pilots that work or solutions that work. And the simple solution is governments need to invest more in education. They need to prioritize all education, but particularly education for girls. And one of the things that we're seeing is that when governments do that, and we've, there's so much research out there that shows when governments do that, there's tremendous benefits, not only to the children who are getting the education, but to the economy of those countries and to the overall social sector. You know, we've got healthier kids. We have better environments. We, there's, there's, you know, all sorts of research that's showing now, for instance, the sixth best thing you can do for climate change is to educate a girl. I personally think that's a little bit of an instrumental approach to girls' education, but talking about, you know, the sort of secondary benefits you get from doing that. So to me, the key solution is invest in girls' education, and the best way you can do that is to invest in all education for girls and for boys, and to remove the social barriers that prevent girls from staying in school for the 12 years that they really need in order to be active citizens. Do you know leaders that sound like these? Leaders, young or old, who are changing the world? Who are not content with what is and are willing to work for what could be? If so, nominate them for the Talberg SNF Eliasson Global Leadership Prize at talbergprize.org. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G prize.org. The good news is that governments, particularly in Europe and North America, but elsewhere as well, are putting together massive spending programs uh, aimed at the consequences, most of the economic consequences of the pandemic. Uh, the bad news is, as I look around the world, I don't see education popping to the top of the priority list. I hear about infrastructure, I hear about climate, I hear about jobs. I don't hear the education argument being made very effectively. And those are in countries with the resources. Those are the big spending plans in the industrial world, in the OECD. You tend to focus on uh, the Brazils, the Indias, the Pakistans, uh, the Nigerias of the world who are resource constrained to start with, more resource constrained today than they were before this. Where's the money gonna come from? Or rather, how do you make the case that it is at least as urgent to fund education as it is to fund COVID programs? Well, we did a research uh, a few years ago uh, and published a report called Full Force, and we collaborated with the World Bank on this research. And our research showed that if every girl in the world received 12 years of education, quality education, we could add $30 trillion to the global economy. It's $30 trillion. So my question to all decision makers is not so much 
you know, how can you afford to invest in education? It's how can you afford not to invest in education? How can you afford to leave a whole generation of girls behind and the intergenerational impacts that that negative impacts that that's going to have um, on them, on their families, on future generations of children? And then on top of that, and this has been verified by the World Bank, by Brookings, by others, the economic impact of that investment is tremendous for every single country. And not making that investment is very, very apparent. Um, so yes, you might want to invest in infrastructure, in jobs, in, in the climate, but all of this is predicated on, on the basic things of providing the social services to your citizens that are absolutely necessary and 12 years of education is one of those. Without that, you're not going to have your workforce that can participate in your green economy. You're not going to have strong infrastructure that's capable of sustaining that economy. And you're going to have all sorts of social problems that are really going to come back. And 10, 15, 20 years from now, we, we are going to be thinking about that moment when we could have doubled down, built back better um, and education being one of the key elements of that build back better and regretting that we didn't do it. So you're a smart woman. As you pound your head against the wall saying, this is so obvious, it's in all of your interest. 30 trillion is a lot of money. Why don't they get it? What is it that isn't connecting in the argument? Uh, to, to be honest with you, I think people do get it. I think the arguments you know, that we've been making over the last two decades of, of education, of basic education, of girls' education has really been driven home. When I first started working, um, I started my career implementing projects in the remote parts of Pakistan. And I would walk into villages to do surveys and things like that. And the first question I'd be asked is, are you here to talk to our women? And I was, I was doing sort of gender-related projects. And they, they would ask me two questions. They said, are you here for family planning? And I was actually working on an agricultural project, uh, you know, that, that the first few years. And I'd say, no, 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 I'm not here for family planning. And then they'd be, say, are you here for to open a girls' school? And I'd be like, no, 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 just want to talk about agriculture. And they'd be like, that's fine. You can stay and you can talk to our women. If you were here for these two reasons, you leave our village right now because we don't want you here. Now, just 20 years later. These were men speaking, I'll bet. These are, oh yeah, well, you had to go to the elders of the village, which were men, to get permission to be there, right? <laughs> they don't let strangers just wander around the streets. Um, and now the opposite happens. You go to a village and, and they'll come up to you and demand, well, our village doesn't have a girls' school, or this girls' school is too far away, or the girls' school doesn't have a bathroom, or all sorts of other things, and say, our girls need to be educated the government needs to provide all these things for it. So the world's, you know, sort of take on girls' education has radically changed. And this is in my working lifetime, and I'm not that old. So, so it's not that long ago. I think the problem is that the governments have not been able to keep up with the demand. We've got growing populations. We've got growing very young populations in all of these uh, countries. And the need for the infrastructure, the need for the investments, uh, basic investments, is huge. This is the time to make those investments, and I think the governments are committed. But, but you know, when a global pandemic hits, when a global recession hits, when there's all these other demands, governments sort of priorities stray. And I think it's important to keep reminding them that this is one of the best investments and one of the most needed investments they can be making. Part of the problem is the half full, half empty glass problem. 
statistics suggest that more than half of kids, boys and girls, age 10, are functionally illiterate. That is to say that they're in school, but the school is producing illiteracy, not literacy. Even if we had a magic wand that we could wave and suddenly the finance ministers of the world say, oh my God, I get it. We've got to put more money in education. Um, does it make sense to put more money into educational systems that aren't producing outcomes that we need? It's, it's not just about a school, a place called school. It's not just about a place with teachers and students. It's about outcomes. And the outcomes, I think, uh, should should embarrass all of us. I've been to too many schools, you know, in, in my travels and for my work where I go. And you're right. There's children who have wrote, learned a few lines from their lessons, who repeat them in a you know, sort of chorus, um, just repeating whatever the teacher has told them without really understanding the concepts. Having said that, we can't improve quality without getting the enrollment first. So you have to get the kids into school. You have to get the basic infrastructure built. You have to get the basic teachers recruited. Um, so if you take a case study, so for instance, one of the countries I know the best, Pakistan, because that's where I'm from, and I've done quite a lot of work there. The basic problem, you know, like I said, 20, 30 years ago, was we just didn't have the schools. We just didn't have the enrollment. So now the government's opened the schools and the enrollment's there. Then the problem was teachers weren't turning up. You know, there was a huge problem 10, 15 years ago that we called ghost teachers. There was tens of thousands of teachers who were on the, the government's payrolls who never showed up to school. They took, the, they took the paychecks, but they did other jobs. They did all sorts of things. They never showed up. The government cracked down on that. And they, they, they fixed that problem. Then there was the problem of, you know, the school didn't have basic furniture and didn't have basic textbooks and so forth. And we've been working really hard over the last decade to fix that problem. Now the problem has become, we actually need to have quality education. You know, the, the highest predictor of which child is going to drop out of school is you take the bottom third of the class uh, in terms of educational attainment and you track them for a few years. And the, and the most likely, particularly for girls, to drop out are going to be those bottom third. Why? Because it, the parents essentially say, well, you're not learning anything in school. You're performing really badly. You could just stay at home and help out, and then we wouldn't have to you know, pay for the school. And even when there's no school fees, Alan, it's very important to remember the hidden costs of schooling, which really is something that also needs to be addressed for the poorest families. Um, and so they drop out uh, and they don't go back to school. So that is the next challenge that we have to really start addressing. And many countries are thinking about that. Some countries have actually been able to address it. We've got, you know, examples of districts in Ghana and Nigeria that have really changed the map of educational attainment. And they've done that through local efforts of improving teacher quality and training, improving the curriculum, teaching in familiar or local languages. That's a big one, by the way. We insist in many, many countries in teaching in English or other languages that children just don't understand. So they're not, not only are they being taught to do rote memorization, but they're being taught to do rote memorization in a language that they don't speak. So obviously they're not going to learn anything. So I think, you know, there, there are steps. I'm very optimistic that in another 10 years, this is something that we'll start to, to really address. Um, and these things take time and we have to keep at it and not lose hope. Let me segue a bit. It's an easy case to make that globalization and globalism perhaps even global values, 
are among the walking wounded after 18 months of this pandemic. We've recently seen the celebrated Prime Minister of Italy crow about prohibiting the export of vaccines to Australia and be cheered on by the rest of the EU, which was an absolutely astounding, not very good moment for those of us who think global values actually matter. You are in the business of globalism. You are trying to work at a global level. You, the Moala Fund, the people you work with. There, there's a lot, especially early on in this, in this pandemic, there was a lot of talk, we're all in this together. Theoretically, yes, practically no is what we, but, but how do we get people to recognize not just about the pandemic, but about this educational challenge that we are all in it together. The challenge of bringing those many millions of young girls into the system or keeping them in the system in ways that they become productive uh, citizens of their countries and, and of space beyond their countries. I, I think the pandemic has set us back a, a long way on many, many of these issues. But there's, again, you know, reason for optimism. It, I hadn't heard the news about the Italian prime minister, I think you said, uh, but I'm not surprised. You know, there's a huge backlash against uh, the AstraZeneca vaccine, too, which, by the way, I got and I haven't gotten a blood clot yet. So it seems OK. That, that's going to be the headline on the story. <laughs> Still alive and kicking. Um, but but I also think that, you know, the, the trends of, of the global world and global citizens and people seeing beyond their own borders is 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 irreversible and some of the pushback is because people are seeing it as being something that is changing their lives and threatening what they were comfortable with um and you know you you know that uh when things really start to change is when you get the biggest pushback uh just before the what is it the corny saying what is the 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 night is the darkest just before dawn or something ridiculous like that um, and so you're also seeing, you know, we're seeing uh, huge amounts of pushback against some of the sort of gender transformative agendas that girls education has, uh, because people are realizing that actually it's a hugely transformative thing that you can do uh, that changes a girl's life, changes a, a household's life and a community's and, and a country's, uh, you know, if you invest in it long enough. I think that it'll continue to happen. I mean, my real boss, <laughs> my boss, uh, well, my boss is the CEO of Malala Fund, but I consider Malala to be, you know, my boss. She's my primary boss because she's the, the chair of the, the board. How did a 16-year-old girl from a small town in Pakistan become such a global symbol? I mean, just that in itself, the amount of recognition and the symbolism that she carries for girls and people who champion the causes of girls' education across the world, where there's instant recognition in Brazil and Ethiopia and Lebanon and Turkey and, you know, pretty much anywhere you go in the world, um, people recognize her to be the symbol. And, and it is because there's the recognition of this universality of the rights that we all hold and the recognition that the activists who stand up for those rights don't stand up for just themselves. They stand up for all of us and the improvement of everybody around the world. And I think that, you know, there will be pushbacks. The pandemic is going to set us back a decade or two decades if we're not careful on so many issues. But I interact with young people around the world all the time, and they give me huge amounts of hope that there is change happening. And we will see this change in our lifetimes. I would end only by correcting slightly what you just said. 
I think Malala's impact is not just symbolic, but it is leadership. And the fact that she has been at such an impact, been able to put together this organization, and this organization has moved the ball in the right direction. That's a good working definition of the kind of leadership that can make this planet, can make our societies uh, more human, more effective, more successful. So thank you, thank her for that work, and, and most importantly for that leadership. Thank you so much uh, for having me on this and having this discussion. I hope the word gets out to more people. Inshallah. Inshallah. Thank you for listening. Now it's your turn. Tell us what you think. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, or you can subscribe to our newsletter at talbergprize.org. Thanks again, and most importantly, don't forget to nominate a leader whose work deserves to be recognised and imitated. This podcast brought to you through the generous support of SNF, the Stavros Nyarkos Foundation.